Chapter Five of the Chronicles of Avonlea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Chronicles of Avonlea, by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter Five, The Winning of Lucinda, Part One. The marriage of a Penhallow was always the signal for a gathering of the Penhallows. From the uttermost parts of the earth they would come, Penhallows by birth, and Penhallows by marriage, and Penhallows by ancestry. East Grafton was the ancient habitat of the race, and Penhallow Grange, where old John Penhallow lived, was Mecca to them. As for the family itself, the exact kinship of all of its various branches and ramifications was a hard thing to define. Old Uncle Julius Penhallow was looked upon as a veritable wonder because he carried it all in his head, and could tell on sight just what relation any one Penhallow was to any other Penhallow. The rest made a blind guess at it for the most part, and the younger Penhallows let it go at loose cousinship. In this instance, it was Alice Penhallow, daughter of young John Penhallow, who was to be married. Alice was a nice girl, but she and her wedding only pertain to this story in so far as they furnish a background for Lucinda. Hence, nothing more need be said of her. On the afternoon of her wedding day, the Penhallows held to the good old-fashioned custom of evening weddings with a rousing dance afterwards. Penhallow Grange was filled to overflowing with guests who had come there to have tea and rest themselves before going down to Young John's. Many of them had driven fifty miles. In the big autumnal orchard, the younger fry foregathered and chatted and coquetted. Upstairs, in old Mrs. John's bedroom, she and her married daughters held high conclave. Old John had established himself with his sons and sons-in-law in the parlor, and the three daughters-in-law were making themselves at home in the blue sitting-room, ear deep in harmless family gossip. Lucinda and Romney Penhallow were also there. Then Mrs. Nathaniel Penhallow sat in a rocking chair and toasted her toes at the grate, for the brilliant autumn afternoon was slightly chilly, and Lucinda, as usual, had the window open. She and plump Mrs. Frederick Penhallow did most of the talking, Mrs. George Penhallow being rather out of it by reason of her newness. She was George Penhallow's second wife, married only a year, hence her contributions to the conversation were rather spasmodic hurled in, as it were, by dead reckoning, being sometimes appropriate and sometimes savoring of a point of view not strictly Penhallow-esque. Romney Penhallow was sitting in a corner, listening to the chatter of the women with the inscrutable smile that always vexed Mrs. Frederick. Mrs. George wondered within herself what he did there among the women. She also wondered just where he belonged on the family tree. He was not one of the uncles, yet he could not be much younger than George. Forty, if he's a day, was Mrs. George's mental dictum, but a very handsome and fascinating man. I never saw such a splendid chin and dimple. Lucinda, with bronze-colored hair and the whitest of skins, defiant of merciless sunlight and reveling in the crisp air, sat on the sill of the open window behind the crimson vine-leaves, looking out into the garden, where dahlias flamed and asters broke into waves of purple and snow. The ruddy light of the autumn afternoon gave a sheen to the waves of her hair and brought out the exceeding purity of her Greek outlines. Mrs. George knew who Lucinda was, a cousin of the second generation, and in spite of her thirty-five years, the acknowledged beauty of the whole Penhallow connection. 
She was one of those rare women who keep their loveliness unmarred by the passage of years. She had ripened and matured, but she had not grown old. The older Penhallows were still inclined from sheer force of habit to look upon her as a girl, and the younger Penhallows hailed her as one of themselves. Yet Lucinda never aped girlishness. Good taste and a strong sense of humor preserved her amid many temptations thereto. She was simply a beautiful, fully developed woman, with whom time had declared a truce, young with a mellow youth which had nothing to do with years. Mrs. George liked and admired Lucinda. Now, when Mrs. George liked and admired any person, it was a matter of necessity with her to impart her opinions to the most convenient confidant. In this case it was Romney Penhallow to whom Mrs. George remarked sweetly, "'Really, don't you think our Lucinda is looking remarkably well this fall?' It seemed a very harmless, inane, well-meant question. Poor Mrs. George might be well excused for feeling bewildered over the effect. Romney gathered his long legs together, stood up, and swept the unfortunate speaker a crushing Penhallow bow of state." Far be it for me to disagree with the opinion of a lady, especially when it concerns another lady, he said, as he left the blue room. Overcome by the mordant satire in his tone, Mrs. George glanced speechlessly at Lucinda. Behold, Lucinda had squarely turned her back on the party and was gazing out into the garden, with a very decided flush on the snowy curves of her neck and cheek. Then Mrs. George looked at her sisters-in-law. They were regarding her with a tolerant amusement they might bestow on a blundering child. Mrs. George experienced that subtle prescience whereby it is given us to know that we have put our foot in it. She felt herself turning an uncomfortable brick red. What penhallow skeleton had she unwittingly jangled? Why, oh, why, was it such an evident breach of the proprieties to praise Lucinda? Mrs. George was devoutly thankful that a summons to the tea-table rescued her from her mire of embarrassment. The meal was spoiled for her, however. The mortifying recollection of her mysterious blunder conspired with her curiosity to banish appetite. As soon as possible after tea she decoyed Mrs. Frederick out into the garden, and in the dahlia walk solemnly demanded the reason of it all. Mrs. Frederick indulged in a laugh which put the metal of her festal brown silk seams to the test. "'My dear Cecilia, it was so amusing,' she said, a little patronizingly. "'But why?' cried Mrs. George, resenting the patronage and the mystery. "'What was so dreadful in what I said, or so funny? And who is this Romney Penhallow who mustn't be spoken to?' "'Oh, Romney is one of the Charlottetown Penhallows,' explained Mrs. Frederick. He is a lawyer there. He is a first cousin of Lucinda's and a second cousin of George's. Or is he? Oh, bother, you must go to Uncle John if you want the genealogy. I'm in a chronic muddle concerning Penhallow relationship. And as for Romney, of course you can speak to him about anything you like, except Lucinda. Oh, you innocent, to ask him if he didn't think Lucinda was looking well, and right before her, too. Of course he thought you did it on purpose to tease him. That was what made him so savage and sarcastic. "'But why?' persisted Mrs. George, sticking tenaciously to her point. "'Hasn't George told you?' "'No,' said George's wife, in mild exasperation. "'George has spent most of his time since we were married telling me odd things about the Penhallows, but he hasn't gotten to that, evidently.' "'Why, my dear, it is our family romance. Lucinda and Romney are in love with each other.' They have been in love with each other for fifteen years, and in all that time they have never spoken to each other once. 
"'Dear me!' murmured Mrs. George, feeling the inadequacy of mere language. "'Was this a penhallow method of courtship? But why?' "'They had a quarrel fifteen years ago,' said Mrs. Frederick patiently. "'Nobody knows how it originated or anything about it, except that Lucinda herself admitted it to us afterwards. But in the first flush of her rage she told Romney that she would never speak to him again as long as she lived, and he said he would never speak to her until she spoke first, because, you see, as she was in the wrong, she ought to make the first advance. And they never have spoken.' Everybody in the connection, I suppose, has taken turns trying to reconcile them, but nobody has succeeded. I don't believe that Romney has ever so much as thought of any other woman in his whole life, and certainly Lucinda has never thought of any other man. You will notice she still wears Romney's ring. They're practically engaged still, of course, and Romney said once that if Lucinda would just say one word, no matter what it was, even if it were something insulting, he would speak, too, and beg her pardon for his share in the quarrel, because then, you see, he would not be breaking his word. He hasn't referred to the matter for years, but I presume that he is of the same mind still. And they are just as much in love with each other as they ever were. He's always hanging about where she is, when other people are there, too, that is. He avoids her like the plague when she is alone. That was why he was stuck out in the blue room with us today. There doesn't seem to be a particle of resentment between them. If Lucinda would only speak! But that Lucinda will not do. Don't you think she will yet? said Mrs. George. Mrs. Frederick shook her crumpled head sagely. Not now. The whole thing has hardened too long. Her pride will never let her speak. We used to hope she would be tricked into it by forgetfulness or accident. We used to lay traps for her, but all to no effect. It is such a shame, too. They were made for each other. Do you know, I get cross when I begin to thrash the whole silly affair over like this. Doesn't it sound as if we were talking of the quarrel of two schoolchildren? Of late years we have learned that it does not do to speak of Lucinda to Romney, even in the most commonplace way. He seems to resent it. He ought to speak cried Mrs. George warmly. Even if she were in the wrong ten times over, he ought to overlook it and speak first. But he won't, and she won't. You never saw such two determined mortals. They get it from their grandfather on the mother's side, old Absalom Gordon. There is no such stubbornness in the Penhallow side. His obstinacy was a proverb, my dear, actually a proverb. Whatever he said, he would stick to it if the skies fell. He was a terrible old man to swear, too, asked Mrs. Frederick, dropping into irrelevant reminiscence. He spent a long time in a mining camp in his younger days, and he never got over it, the habit of swearing, I mean. It would have made your blood run cold, my dear, to have heard him go on at times. And yet he was a real good old man every other way. He couldn't help it some way. He tried to, but he used to say that profanity came as natural to him as breathing. It used to mortify his family terribly. Fortunately, none of them took after him in that respect. But he's dead, and one shouldn't speak ill of the dead. I must go and get Maddie Penhollow to do my hair. I would burst the sleeves clean out if I tried to do it myself, and I don't want to dress over again. You won't be likely to talk to Romney about Lucinda again, my dear Cecilia. Fifteen years, murmured Mrs. George helplessly to the Dahlias, engaged for fifteen years and never speaking to each other. Dear heart and soul, think of it. Oh, these Penhollows! 
Meanwhile, Lucinda, serenely unconscious that her love-story was being mouthed over by Mrs. Frederick in the Dahlia Garden, was dressing for the wedding. Lucinda still enjoyed dressing for a festivity, since the mirror still dealt gently with her. Moreover, she had a new dress. Now a new dress, and especially one as nice as this, was a rarity with Lucinda, who belonged to a branch of the Penhallows noted for being chronically hard up. Indeed, Lucinda and her widowed mother were positively poor, and hence a new dress was an event in Lucinda's existence. An uncle had given her this one, a beautiful, perishable thing such as Lucinda would never dare choose for herself, but in which she reveled with feminine delight. It was of pale green voile, a color which brought out admirably the ruddy gloss of her hair and the clear brilliance of her skin. When she had finished dressing, she looked at herself in the mirror with frank delight. Lucinda was not vain, but she was quite well aware of the fact of her beauty and took an impersonal pleasure in it, as if she were looking at some finely painted picture by a master hand. The form and face reflected in the glass satisfied her. The puffs and draperies of the green voile displayed to perfection the full, but not over-full, curves of her fine figure. Lucinda lifted her arm and touched a red rose to her lips with the hand upon which shone the frosty glitter of Romney's diamond, looking at the graceful slope of her shoulder and the splendid line of chin and throat with critical approval. She noted, too, how well the gown became her eyes, bringing out all the deeper color in them. Lucinda had magnificent eyes. Once Romney had written a sonnet to them, in which he compared their color to ripe blueberries. This may not sound poetical to you unless you know or remember just what the tints of ripe blueberries are, dusky purple in some lights, clear slate in others, and yet again in others the misty hue of early meadow violets. "'You really look very well,' remarked the real Lucinda to the mirrored Lucinda. "'Nobody would think you were an old maid. But you are. Alice Penhallow, who is to be married to-night, was a child of five when you thought of being married fifteen years ago.' That makes you an old maid, my dear. Well, it is your own fault, and it will continue to be your fault, you stubborn offshoot of a stubborn breed. She flung her train out straight and pulled on her gloves. End of chapter 5, part 1